uh, when we first started this church, I was reading a lot of Wendell Berry. Anybody read? No, no youth group Wednesday. Sorry. Glad you said that. Yeah, no youth group Wednesday because the building will be um, used by the school. So, um, yeah, thanks for asking that. Good call. Um, anybody read Wendell Berry? Any Wendell Berry fans? Okay, well, you, you need to. If you don't, you, you need to read some Wendell Berry. Along with being a great philosophical mind and an amazing poet, he writes really good fiction. And, uh, and I, that's what I enjoy reading the most. His most popular book series is set in this town called Port Williams. And uh, he tells the story of this farming community from about the early 20th century to the mid to late uh, part of that same century. And, and he creates this beautiful picture of the intertwining relationships of a small town. And, and the cool thing is you can pick up any book in the series and they're not chronological. They're just the same story from a different perspective. So the, the big stories show up in every book the way like everybody in the town remembers the big stories. So the, the big story will be told from different perspectives in every single book. And it's just there's just these awesome Beautiful books. Well, I was reading a bunch of those. I was actually reading the first one that I had read uh, called Jaber Crow um, when we first planted the church. And uh, and and his picture of a farm kind of became like my metaphor for what church should be, especially a pastor. He has this thing where he says the 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 man is the farm's farmer. The farm is not the man's farm. Um, what he meant by that was that farm was there long before that farmer and it'll be there long after he's gone. So the man does not own the farm. The farm owns the farmer. And, uh, and it kind of became like my picture of what a pastor should be like, like that this is not my church. I'm this church's pastor. Hopefully this church is here long after me and there's a lot of pastors and I just happen to be one of them. But it kind of, and, and the way that the relationships interconnect and the people do life together, um, kind of became my, my like metaphor. So while I'm like soaking in this Wendelberry fiction and planning a church, I decide I'm going to put in this giant garden. Like, you know, Wendelberry's always talking about farming. I'm like, I want to get my hands in the dirt. I've never been much of a gardener, but I would like, I'm reading Wendelberry. You got to plant stuff. So I'm, I'm out making this, I till up this huge garden. I plant all this stuff and I'm, I'm making this connection in my brain between agriculture and spiritual life and, and I'm drawing all these metaphors out of it, uh, which I've always kind of done. I actually like the drive through Western Kansas. Some people are like, oh my God, that's so boring. Like it, it like, it, it like enamors me because I'm like, there's not an inch of ground out here that man has not worked hard to touch. Like all of this nature and there's fences around all of it. Like, holy cow, this represents a lot of work, which is the way I think of ministry. Like this weird blend of something only God can do and something we work really hard to do. And it feels like farming to me. Like if God, you can work as hard as you want. If it doesn't rain, you grow nothing. Like God has to do his part. But also we have to work really hard and do our part. And it's this cool blend of the two. Um, so I'm, I'm planting this garden and I can like, I can almost taste like the, the, both the spiritual fruit and the literal fruit I'm going to get like from this garden. It's this amazing metaphor that's just kind of exploding in my head. Um, so I'm ready to harvest tomatoes and cucumbers and carrots and watermelons and all this stuff from my little piece of earth. At the same time, I'm ready to like see our church harvest people for Jesus. And it's really awesome. So you can imagine my concern. When I go out and there's like nothing but weeds, like my carrots don't even take, I get no carrots, I got nothing but weeds everywhere. And the amount of time I spent that summer trying to get rid of squash bugs, I didn't know squash bugs were a thing. I didn't know that they even existed. And suddenly I'm fighting squash bugs like it's World War II. Like I'm getting up every morning, like I will get you today. I'm out there fighting squash bugs. And and by the end of the summer... With the, if time is money, I ate some thousand dollar tomatoes that year. Like my four tomatoes I got, I had put so much time into those four tomatoes. Those are expensive tomatoes. 
Um, but I was taken back to that garden this week as, uh, and, and also back to that original garden in Eden as I was, uh, as I was getting into our, to our uh, passage, including the, the weeds and the squash bugs and the thousand dollar tomatoes. Um, so, so this week is going to be a gardening week. We're going to be harvesting. We're going to be talking about the earth. Uh, this is our fifth week in our series called the game of life. We're moving kind of one space at a time, um, from death closer to closer to the resurrection life that Jesus, uh, bought for us when he walked out of the tomb. We've, uh, we've looked at three of the relationships that died when Adam and Eve ate that wrong fruit salad back in the, back in the garden. Um, and, uh, and what those relationships might look like if they were resurrected. We talked about that broken relationship with God. When God showed up in the garden and Adam and Eve hid for the first time. They've never hidden from God before. They didn't know it, and, but something's changed. And all of a sudden they're afraid of God's presence. They don't want to be with God. They didn't like themselves anymore. For the very first time ever, they looked down and they, they weren't comfortable in their own skin. They experienced shame for the very first time. Something had changed in their relationship to their own self. And something broke in their relationship with each other. They suddenly, just before that, they were like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two are going to become one. And now all of a sudden, Adam is like, she did it. And he's pushing her away and creating distance where there didn't used to be distance. And then... Then we find out that the relationship with the earth or their vocation or their, their living was suddenly broken. God said, you're going you're gonna to scratch out a living with the sweat of your brow. And that's what we're talking about today. And today's sermon is called Move One Step Down in the Game of Life. We're reading uh, another one of Jesus' parables where he discusses this broken relationship that we're treating with this morning. Uh, we'll be in Luke 12 if you want to follow in your own Bible or app. And, uh, or you can follow along on the screens. We're going to start in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, tell my brother to divide my family's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And he told this story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crop. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not be rich, have a rich relationship with God. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's parable um, is a little different from the other ones we've, we've dealt with in this series. Uh, because in all the other ones, he was kind of accentuating what a resurrected life or relationship might look like. This one he's kind of using as a cautionary tale. He kind of flips this one. Um, in other words, he looks at how to get it wrong. And, uh, and, and where I want to start is this line that kind of drew me to this passage in the first place, it reads like this. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be married. Remember last week, we, this theologian came up to Jesus with this really academic question. What should I do to be saved? And he wanted to know from the Bible this kind of academic theological question. And we talked about this question of what do I do to have life? What do I do to have life? And we've been talking about how Moses, when he came and offered the Israelites life, he was like, if you'll obey Torah... You'll have increase and, and blessing and multiplication when you get into the land. This idea that, that life is more than just you go to heaven when you 
guy. It's you should have life right now. Enjoy life, blessing and increase in abundance. Well, this week's parable, the main character apparently has that. He has that blessing and abundance and multiplication, um, which uh, creates in our series kind of an interesting nuance because we see that even though this guy has everything that you might call a good life, uh, it, uh, it goes wrong. He's got it all. He has plenty for years to come. Before we can deal with exactly what's wrong with his kind of conclusion or his idea, we need to set a bit of a backdrop for this parable really quickly. Again, this parable occurs in Luke's travel narrative. I don't want to go deep into that. We've done it in this series, but Luke leaves Galilee and he's traveling through Samaria to get down to Jerusalem. This is kind of his final trip. Um, when he gets to Jerusalem, that's when he'll, he'll actually die. So this is his final trip. He spends 10 chapters of Luke in this in this traveling uh, narrative. So 10 weeks he's in Samaria uh, preaching on his way to the holy city. And, uh, and this, this happens, this sermon happens in that trip. Um, and this dialogue is a little weird. This kind of series of, of uh, all commentators kind of struggle with this because he goes back and forth from talking to the crowd to talking to his disciples. So there's times when it says that he said unto his disciples, it sounds like a private conversation, and then somebody from the crowd will pipe in. So nobody really knows who he's really talking to through most of it. If he's talking to this crowd or if he's talking to his disciples directly. But... Um, but this, this narrative uh, starts uh, with this funny note about how many people are really there. It says this in chapter 12, uh, right at the beginning of the chapter. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about, stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. Now, this verse seems to come completely out of nowhere. Um, and it's kind of weird. Uh, totally left field thing, this, this warning. Um, but what I think is going on here is that Luke points out the size of the crowd for a reason. Uh, I think as the crowd is growing, maybe the disciples are getting excited. Maybe they're acting a little different. Like we have people suddenly. We got people talking to us. I, I think they felt the momentum of their movement. They're heading toward Jerusalem and they're gathering people. And it feels different all of a sudden. Uh, in fact, I think... They probably liked being in the inner circle close to Jesus as more and more people are suddenly packing around. Uh, and I, I think they felt like they kind of had the attention of all these people. And I think Jesus maybe saw something, maybe a smug look on their faces, maybe just a subtle shift in body language, or maybe he overheard the disciples talking to the crowd and kind of sounding like big shots, this note of self-importance in their voice. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Beware. Be careful now. Something's changing. And Jesus introduces this really powerful metaphor of yeast. He says it with this line. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered will be revealed. And that all that is secret will be made known. Whatever you have, uh, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Now, this metaphor is terrifying, uh, because what I think uh, happens here is that Jesus hears or sees or senses something in his disciples, and it's probably so minor that, it, that it's completely justifiable. The kind of thing where you're like, we're surrounded by thousands of people. Of, of course we had to do something to maintain order. Of course we had to step up and, and take charge a little bit. And they could have been right. 
So what Jesus does here is, is gives this really gentle kind of warning that's just like, be careful. Be careful. And then he just kind of explodes this metaphor on them. Because the difference, I'm going to see, I've got to check something here real quick. Esther and I were going to do a thing. And this morning got so nutty. Hold on. I got it. This metaphor of yeast is tricky because I'm going to leave them here. There she is. She's awesome. Because you tell me which one of these has yeast. You can come up and inspect them if you want. There is, you cannot know. My wife, if she did her job, I'm sure she did, put yeast in one of these and didn't put it in the other one. Which is what makes this metaphor so powerful. Not just that yeast is, is small, but it's undetectable. You can't know. Now I lost all my stuff. There it is. You can't know if it's there. And Jesus grabs this funny little metaphor and he's like, be careful. Be careful that you don't have some yeast. What's fun is I don't even know which one it is. The difference between two lumps of dough, one with yeast and one without yeast, is literally undetectable. So how do we know? How do we know which one has yeast? Louder. We wait. There's only one way to know. You wait and you see. And Jesus follows up this thing about the yeast by saying, everything that is hidden will be made known. Everything that's secret will be spoken. You will know. You just have to wait. Everything hidden will be, will be revealed if you give it time. And this is absolutely terrifying. Because it basically means the crowd around Jesus could be a good thing. It could be a good thing. It could be good that the disciples, uh, that people want to hear from Jesus. People want to know what Jesus is saying. People want to be close and see the Messiah. Or it could be deadly. So that's fun. Yeah. Just, and the only real way to know is wait and see. Wait and see. What? So... So this is like a really ominous warning. Jesus starts to talk about some of this. After he talks about this yeast thing, he starts to talk about some of these deep motivations. This, this, the part of the glacier that's like under the water that nobody sees. The reason we really do what we do. Stuff that no one can tell is there. Two people can do the exact same thing. They can live the exact same life. One can be doing it out of joy to serve Jesus. The other one can be doing it to try to earn something and get favor for somebody. And you would not be able to tell. The two lives would look identical. And one is doing awesome and the other one is way off. And Jesus is like, just give it time. It'll show up. 
Jesus talks about fear and, and, and what it looks like to fear men rather than God and, and how two people can, can kind of live the same way. One's doing it to please men, one's doing it to please God, and it looks the same, but it's not the same. He talks about how five sparrows are sold in the marketplace for two pennies, and sparrows are the absolute cheapest form of protein. They ate sparrows in the Middle East. The cheapest form of protein you can get, this is like poor people food. It's socially acceptable. It's not like, you know, eating something that's rejected, but, but it's, it's the cheapest form of protein. He's like, can't, you can buy five sparrows for two pennies, and yet not one of them falls without your father knowing it, which is not always real helpful because they still fell and are being sold in the marketplace for two pennies. And you're like, hold on a second. Just because he knows about it doesn't mean he stopped it. Anyway, but obviously Jesus points out that the only healthy way to live is to please God. Fearing men or even trying to please men uh, can come from a bad motive. Now remember, this is happening in the context of this crowd, this crowd that's gathering. And Jesus is like, hold on. Be careful about fearing the opinions of people. Be careful of that. And he's pointing this out. Then Jesus kind of extends it in verse 8 to talk about um, failing to acknowledge Jesus publicly. If you, if you start pleasing crowds and you start making the crowds happy and you fail to really acknowledge Jesus publicly, um, that, can, that can go south and, and kind of gets even deeper into their motivation. And while he's doing this, while he's kind of uh, laying this groundwork, all based on something he sensed in this moment, um, this dude totally interrupts him, just jumps in. And he, and he says, teacher, please tell my brother to divide my, fa- divide my father's estate with me. Comes out of nowhere. And it's kind of cool. This is awesome. First, this is what rabbis did. This is actually a fairly normal thing. What, part of what rabbis did was people would come and go, hey, I borrowed my friend's ox and it died while I had it. What do we do? And he'd go, well, let's look at Torah. And they'd go to Torah and they'd say, oh, it says here you... Uh, you you pay your buddy for the ox, but you get to keep the meat. That's actually what Torah says. If an ox dies while you're borrowing it, in case, you, in case you're borrowing an ox, if you're borrowing an ox and you need to know, that's what happens. But what it really was was you might borrow a lawnmower and it dies while you're, and, and the rabbi would go, no land, no lawnmowers in the Torah, but it does have ox. So I think we can use that. And they would, so it's, you got to pay him for the lawnmower, but you get the parts. <laughs> I guess with the way that would, that would work. So. But that's what rabbis did. People would come with their problems and the rabbi would, would go to Torah. And, and Jesus doesn't get involved in this, which some people think Jesus was, because the rabbis kind of made up that, that feature of their role. Um, it's kind of one of the things they added. And so it might have been that Jesus was going, hey, that's not what rabbis are supposed to do. Or it might have just been that he didn't want to get involved. We don't really know. But, but, uh, but he basically, this guy comes to him, Jesus, and because Jesus is a rabbi, and that's what rabbis did. And he's like, hey, fix my issue here. What does Torah say about this? Uh, and this dispute is actually a really common one. Um, one. It's one of the most common first century land disputes that they had. A father, a dad would, would build a big farm, and then he would die. And inheritance loss that the oldest son got a, a big chunk of it, and then the rest got divided against the younger sons. Um, and this is, that's what Torah said they were supposed to do. Except sometimes it was better for the farm to leave it together. Sometimes it really hurt the farm to break it up into pieces and divide it. So, so what they would do is they would leave it together and the older brother would then divide the profits according to Torah so that the farm could function better as a full farm. And then, uh, and then he would divide it up, uh, the profits. Except every once in a while you get a, uh, a younger son who wants to liquidate his piece and he wants to, uh, 
you know, he wants to run off and do something totally different and, and doesn't want to be a farmer. And so he, so he's like, hey, make my brother give me my piece um, so I can liquidate it, sell it, and get out of here. And, and this is kind of a, a, um, a, a sticky point in the first century because this is a collectivist society. It's not individualist and independent uh, like America. They value different things. So being like an independent, I want my piece of land so I can do something, wasn't necessarily lauded in that culture. They were collectivists. You should think about the family and the farm and the, and the, uh, the kind of surrounding um, farms and stuff. And so most people sided with the older brother. And they were like, no, you stay and serve the family. Uh, and it was, it was kind of funny. So, um, so this guy kind of pushed Jesus in a sticky spot. He's like, you're going to obey the letter of Torah? which says, that's my piece of farm, I should get it and be able to do whatever I want with it? Or are you going to stick with the heart of Torah, which is that the family should stay and care for one another and you should think about other people, not just your yourself? And rather than get involved in this guy's actual personal issues, Jesus takes the whole family squabble as an opportunity to make the very point he was already making. Okay, the crowd starts to build up. A lot of people are suddenly interested in what's happening. They want to see Jesus. They want to, they want to uh, be a part of it. And Jesus feels the need for caution. So he starts talking about bad motives and, and how dangerous this moment can be uh, if you get it wrong. And, and suddenly this guy steps up and perfectly illustrates his point for him. Jesus is basically saying, here you are quoting Torah and claiming to obey the Bible and do the right thing. Uh, and yet you're destroying your relationship with your brother in the process. Like, and this is, this is exactly what happens. Remember that yeast comment? It's as if Jesus is saying, you want to know how you've got the yeast of greed? Give it time. You'll start to destroy relationships. That's how you know it's in there. At first, it sounds right. It sounds like divide the farm. It's, my, it's mine. It's totally okay. I'm allowed to do this. And there's nothing wrong with it. You can't say his decision is wrong. And Jesus is like, give it a minute. If it's yeast, the relationships will start to fall apart. You'll start to hurt people. You'll start to do uh, uh, wrong things with your rightness. Just give it time. Everything that happens will eventually be made known. It will eventually be seen. So this interruption serves to make a point that Jesus was already making. So as you read this parable... We have to read it in the, in the context of this whole motive and motif of, of, of your inner and deepest motivations. Jesus tells the story of a rich landowner to kind of illustrate this point. And some of the details of this parable are uh, kind of easy to miss. So I'm going to bring it out first. This guy's able to build a whole new set of barns without even having to sell that year's crops. That puts this guy in first century in the uber filthy rich category. The fact that he can hold on to a whole year's crops and still has the money to tear down barns and rebuild them. This is a super rich guy. So this isn't just a wealthy farmer. This is a super rich guy. Second, uh, this is the kind of move that is like smiled upon in Fortune magazine, um, but seriously frowned upon in a first century market. Uh, this guy has a bumper crop, and most likely other people did too. It's very rare for one farmer to have a great crop and everybody else to be in a famine. So most likely everybody had a fairly good year that year. Um, so for him to like store up his crop uh, is is a way of him controlling the market. He's going, there's too much grain out there right now. I'm not going to sell while supply and demand is, while there's a lot of supply. And, you know, that would drive the price down. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang on to it. And therefore, I'll sell it when the market's in a little better place. When there's a little less grain out there, um, 
which is, the, which is a really, really good business decision. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the thing. Um, there was likely more than enough grain. So he's kind of manipulating the market and controlling a commodity, um, which is a super smart move in business, but a pretty douchey move to the poor. <laughs> to the, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> Lena act like I slapped her, like, oh my God, he just said that. Sorry. So the, to the, to the poor and the needy in the area who just saw the price of food take a bump up because this guy decided not to sell his grain, it's not the best move. In a collectivist society, this is not the best move to make. And I think the people listening to Jesus would have been like, ah, one of those guys that can control the market and, and, and make money with their money. The other thing... Uh, kind of the overly frugal thing that this guy does is he doesn't just build a couple extra barns. I think because that would have cut into his, his, his field and his, and his, and his, uh, uh, his capacity to make more later. So he tears down his barns and builds them on the same footprint, just bigger ones. That way he doesn't eat up any more of his fields. So this guy is, is making money over money over money. So basically Jesus is kind of building a case against this guy that the crowd, because this is not the kind of guy that would have been out in the Samaritan wilderness listening to Jesus. Most likely, from, from everything we have, Jesus was surrounded by the, the kind of salt of the earth kind of people. And they're listening about this guy, one of those guys, right? One of those rich people. But the final straw is actually in the literary form of the parable. It says this, that he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear them down. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Luke literally uses this literary device a lot um, in his gospel, but it builds on a well-known kind of Jewish writing style where that anybody who talks to himself is a bad guy. It's kind of, uh, it, it's actually a fairly well, it's not like us where like anybody that talks to themselves is kind of crazy. No, it wasn't craziness. They just, they, they saw it as wrong. Um, and this builds on so, something that the Talmuds, uh, that the rabbis in the Talmud said. They would say that um, in light of the omnipresence of God, uh, which they wouldn't have used that word back then, but the fact that God is everywhere, um, any man who talks to himself is ignoring God. Because they would say, why not just talk to God? God's right there. Talk to God. God's everywhere. You can always talk to God. And so they would encourage you to speak to the Lord. If you got a problem, you go, okay, God. Anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Like, I love uh, how Tevia just, you know, while he's working in the barn, just talking to God. You know, God, you have to, I know I've been blessed with five daughters. You have to bless me so much. You know, that he's talking to God the whole time. Because Jews in Jewish literature don't talk to themselves because that would be to ignore the fact that God is in the room with you. And so it's a, it's kind of a well-known literary device and Luke uses it all the time. If you go through, read Luke, anybody that speaks to themselves is always the bad guy in the story. It's a, it's a very common first century literary device. Um, so, uh, the rabbis noted that the only time it is appropriate to talk to yourself, if you do it like David did, where you go, why are you so downcast on my soul? Praise God. You can talk to yourself if you're encouraging yourself to turn back to God, then it's okay. Any other time you're not allowed to talk to yourself in Jewish literature. Um, so writers and storytellers would pick up on this. They would use it as a way to identify a God denier without having to spell it out and be like, crass. You just put a little dialogue where he talks to himself and everybody's like, ah, one of those guys, one of those guys that talks to himself. I know him. Um, and this is basically the way of identifying this personality flaw in this character without having to 
spell it out bluntly. And in Jesus' story, it's even more powerful um, because of the way this guy talks to himself. He says, he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for my crops. I know I'll tear down my barns and I'll have room enough for all my wheat. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away. My crops, my barn, my wheat. Jews have this strong understanding of stewardship. It's part of their core, like theology. Uh, they weren't allowed to even sell their land to foreigners. Like if, if somebody from outside of Israel wants to come in and buy a piece of your farm, you can't do it in Israel. You weren't allowed because it's not your land. It's God's land. God said, this is my land. I'm loaning it to you. They had a jubilee where every 50 years, all the debts got reset and everybody got the family, the original family piece of land back, which was kind of a powerful thing because 50 years is long enough for somebody to make bad decisions and fail. And so you had plenty of time for people to do dumb things and become poor. But it kept your kids from having to adopt that poverty. Your kids, 50 years later, would get a piece of land and an opportunity and a chance to try. And so it, it allowed, it wasn't like, you know, we're not going to let anybody be poor. We're going to share everything equally. It wasn't like that. But it also, it stopped generational poverty where just because your parents blew it, now your kids are starting out behind. And so every 50 years, there was a reset. And the reason that we were allowed to do that, because God was like, it's not your land. Like, and when you bought a piece of land, there was only like two years left before the Jubilee. You bought it for less because you know, and it even says it in the, in the Torah. It says you're really only renting two years worth of crops. It's, you don't get to keep the land. It's not your land. It's all God's land. But you get it for two years. And so uh, you buy it for two years worth of crops. That's the value of the land. And then it goes back to the family because it's all God's. And God gets to decide what to do with all that. So they had this like deep in their, in their DNA that none of this is really yours. This is God's. You're just a steward. All over the Psalms, God reinforces this. Where he, he, there's times when he spurns their sacrifices. Uh, and there's even one Psalm where he says, you know, why, why would I want cattle and livestock? It's all mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I can do whatever I want with it. And then you're bringing me your cow like it's some kind of gift. That's my cow. <laughs> So this guy in Jesus' story not only talks to himself, which is a big red flag, but he speaks of his crops and his barns and his stuff. And a Jewish reader would have caught that. And a Jewish reader would have been like, that's not your stuff. None of that is your stuff. That's God's stuff. In fact, he wasn't even a great neighbor. In a collectivist society, the fact that he's making these big market decisions and not even talking to his fellow farmers and neighbors around him would have been a really inconsiderate move. To Americans, it looks totally natural. Like, we value independence, we value ownership, so we have a tendency to think in terms of your land and your barns. You don't have to ask anybody. You can do whatever you want with your stuff. But that's obviously not the message Jesus is sending here, which makes it a little tough to talk about in our context. By most American definitions, this guy is killing it. This guy's awesome. He's got the dream, right? He works hard, makes good decisions, he's responsible. And he gets to retire in leisure. That's the dream. And yet Jesus uses him as a bad example. Okay, one more subtle little nuance that we need to bring out. Um, and it's in this word barn. This word barn has some very prophetic importance to it. It's a real big deal in Israel. All the way back to Moses. Uh, when God is giving the Torah to Israel, this is the rules you'll live by. This is what will make you a people. This is how you'll identify yourself and, and know who you are. They set up this thing called a storehouse, a barn. 
It was, and it's, the, the, the root of the word is the same. And it reads like this. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of the year's harvest to the storehouse, to the barn, in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, who will receive no allotment of land among you. And it will, as well as for the foreigners living among you, and the orphans and the widows in the town, so that they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. So the people of Israel were supposed to bring... Every third tithe, every three years, you bring your whole tithe. And if you, we have a great teaching on the tithe. If, if, if you want to be, if you, if you didn't, if you weren't here for it, you'll be surprised. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Ask me about it. I'll tell you where to listen to it. It's, uh, it's not the way you normally hear it spoken about. I can promise you that. Um, but every third year you brought your tithe and you put it in this barn. Uh, but Israel was terrible about doing this. They almost never actually did it. This is one of the things the prophets harped on all the time. Um, one of the most famous is Malachi 3. A lot of us have heard this verse. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You've cheated me uh, of the tithes and offerings due to me. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes to the storehouse. So this is the, every third tithe to the storehouse. So there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, the Lord says, the, uh, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up windows of uh, the windows of heaven for you. And I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, please remember, this isn't like a big building expansion that God is, is talking about here. In fact, every time there's a building expansion in the, in the Bible, there's like four of them when they're wanting to build something. People bring so much stuff that people have to go, that's enough. We've got plenty. Stop it. Like people in the Bible like the idea of expanding the building, the temple, the things like that. This isn't like the religious sacrifices. This is because there was times when they're, they're in a procession that says they killed a bull every six steps. Like, they had no trouble, you know, bringing to God what he needed when it was a big move like this. Um, the, the Old Testament records all kinds of elaborate offerings and sacrifice for stuff like this. This is the storehouse. This is that one piece that's intended to provide for the Levites and the widows, orphans, and foreigners. This is the piece that's supposed to care for the poor. And it sat empty all the time. Almost every prophet was going, the storehouses are empty. This is, this is taking care of people. Idolatry and injustice to the poor are the two biggest themes in all the prophets. You're worshiping idols and you're not caring about the poor. It's all through every prophetic book. In fact, you know the Sodom and Gomorrah? We've, we've even turned... We've created a word out of that. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah for their, their wickedness in Genesis 19. They were destroyed because, and, and Genesis 19 is so gnarly, I can't even read it on a Sunday morning. Like, you gotta do that in your own private time. I don't care what you do. But, uh, it's, uh, we used to read through the Bible, um, with our kids, you know, and I would kind of edit as I was on it, and I was like, so he kissed her. That's what he did. Um, Genesis 19, I was just like, yeah, we're skipping that chapter. We're not even, there's nothing. So we, we read Genesis 19 and we're like, and if you don't know the story, go read it. But it's pretty gnarly. The people in Sodom were, they were lost. Like you read it, you're like, oh man, those people need Jesus. Like, and, and so we think that's what it was. Like, of course they got destroyed. Of course God wiped them out. Look at that. Except Ezekiel 16 sneaks in this funny little thing. 
It reads a little different than what we're used to. It says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked. He's talking to his, his own people. Were never as wicked as you and your daughters. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her gates. That's not what we think about when we think about Sodom. God is like pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor suffer outside her door. It's all through the prophetic writings. In fact, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then later the 7,000, these weren't just like cool miracles because everybody, you know, was hungry and forgot to pack a lunch. And so Jesus, you know, kind of makes food out of a fish sandwich. This is, this is something the Messiah was supposed to do. To have access to the provisions of heaven. This was a messianic thing. And all through these conversations about provisions and the care for the poor and more than enough and the abundance of God, the, the main symbol that held all that together was the storehouse, the barn. All through the prophets they talk about why is the storehouse empty? Why is the barn empty? So imagine Jesus telling a story about a guy who has more than enough and instead of sharing or even lowering his prices so that the poor can afford food, he starts talking about my storehouse, my barn, my goods. And I honestly think Jesus is here. The second Jesus mentions barns, probably got that prickly, uncomfortable feeling you get when the preacher starts talking about money. Does anybody ever get that feeling when the preacher starts talking about money? You can just feel it in your bones. Oh God, here we go. Well, Jesus paints a picture of a guy with unimaginable wealth who's above the market so he can manipulate it, who talks to himself rather than to God, who no longer sees himself as a steward of the things that he has, rather they're his, and he's ignoring the storehouse and caring for the poor so that he can build himself much bigger storehouses and live in leisure, eat, drink, be merry. And we don't even have to guess where Jesus is going with this character because he actually tells us pretty darn clear. He says, but God said to him, you fool. In, in, in Jewish language, fool is never uh, like a dummy. Like it's, it says, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool in the Jewish language is a, a God denier. The Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He said... You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool if he stores up earthly wealth and does not have a rich relationship with God. This guy works so hard, gets it all set up and dies. <laughs> it actually made me think, Sean and I were talking this weekend. He told me about this truck that he had that he spent five years paying off. And as soon as he got it paid off, he dropped it to liability. And then like within a couple of weeks, totaled it. <laughs> that's like, that's this story. The guy, the guy gets it all ready. Finally, gets it all built up. And then it, and then it's gone. And believe it or not, this guy's story is, is worse because now he's dead. I'm just glad Sean wasn't dead. So it was that kind of wreck. It was that kind of wreck. Believe it or not, this guy's story is actually worse. And Jesus' story takes this kind of weird eschatological element, which just means final end times, end judgment kind of thing, where Jesus is suddenly trying to get us to see beyond just this life, beyond just the things we have now. 
But remember now, this whole story is actually just an interruption to the message that Jesus is already giving. It kind of stands in the middle. This guy interrupts. Hey, (laughs) which is so weird. Tell my brother to give me this thing. And Jesus is like, and that's what I'm trying to say. That's the very point. That yeast. Jesus sees something in the crowd or something in his disciples' reaction. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Be careful. Make sure your heart is right. And this guy, whose heart obviously isn't right, interrupts and basically makes Jesus' point for him. So Jesus tells this parable. Uh, that can be really disturbing because this guy is really a good American. <laughs> really should have a podcast teaching about, you know, how to leverage your capital to make more money. <laughs> but the thing to remember is that Jesus starts off this whole teaching with this metaphor of yeast. This hidden, sneaky, yet powerful additive. And this is why he tells this story and why so many elements that allow us to see into this guy's secret inner life in Jesus' story. He's like, you want to see what yeast looks like? It's like talking to yourself instead of God. It's like like the my instead of God's. That's what yeast is like. Yeah, his life looks amazing on the outside. It looks like the dream on the outside. But inside of it, there's this little thing nobody can see. There's actually something very, very wrong. Profit, because profit isn't bad. Wealth isn't bad. Full barns are not bad. But ignoring God and ignoring generosity are very bad. So after finishing his story, Jesus actually goes back to his original teaching. If you pull this story out and read the part before and the part after, it actually flows really nicely. This is clearly just an interruption. He says, then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I, uh, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or whether you have clothes to wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For, and God feeds them, and you're far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all the worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make any clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers which are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, then he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it's your Father's great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purse in heaven will never get old and develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. And I don't even feel like I have to unpack that. Jesus lays it out so clear. And most of us are really familiar with this teaching. Uh, And if we hold this passage narratologically... That's a word I read in my commentaries this week, and I told my wife I was going to use it, and she was like, you're going to sound like a nerd. Don't use that word. (laughs) Narratologically. How fun is that? (laughs) If you hold the narrative together in this entire chapter, this very famous passage, 
about stress and anxiety and worry happens in the context of this lesson on yeast, on this sneaky, insidious, and mostly undetectable stuff is where it starts. Fear, worry, stress, panic, anxiety. Pick your word. But it all comes from one place. And I think that is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 says this, And to the man he said, Since you listen to your wife, see, see, no, I'm not going to, I'm kidding. Since you, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you. You will eat of its grain by the sweat of your brow. You'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. Our relationship with the very ground was broken. That first year in my big garden, I fought Adam's fight. I actually had a conversation with Carl this weekend. And I was, you know, he was like, how are you doing? I was like, I'm tired. I'm just worn out. I said, uh, I've got this bathroom I've been remodeling clear on the other side of Lee Summit, and I... Most of the work I've been doing is in this area, so my commute is like eight minutes, and suddenly I'm driving 45, 50 minutes to work on this bathroom, and this just got me worn out. And Carl goes, well, you're still young, and I can tell you this, it doesn't get any easier. (laughs) And he's obviously right. God, God called it all the way back in the garden. You will scratch a living, and wow, does that feel accurate. And the worst part is the stress, the scratching, the, the sweaty brow is universal. We all have it. The World Health Organization, probably 20 years ago now, did a worldwide study using this metric they call the happiness quotient. I don't really know how that works, but they went to every socioeconomic bracket in the world to see if money could buy happiness. And they found that it absolutely does for some people. They found that if you take somebody whose basic needs aren't met and you give them a little bit of money, enough money to to get the basic necessities, it definitely creates more contentment, more happiness. And, And that was true all over the world in every culture. If you don't have enough to have your basic needs met, more money creates more happiness. But once you have your basic needs met, adding more income actually wound up reducing a person's happiness quotient. America was actually the worst. In America, according to the study, the more you have, the more stress comes with it. I mean, let's pull back to the 30,000 foot view of this passage. It starts with a crowd that wants to see Jesus and hear Jesus. That's a good thing. And then it comes this guy whose dad was wealthy enough to actually leave them an inheritance. That's not a foregone conclusion in first century Israel. An inheritance is a good thing. Then it moves this guy who has this crazy profitable year in business. Profit is a good thing. So what's wrong with this picture? It's that little bit of yeast. And you know how you know it's there? Time. You wait. You wait and see. In time, it starts to convert into worry and stress and broken relationships, and anxiety. And Jesus, from the beginning of this passage, 
is trying to warn us away from that. So what is Jesus' conclusion then? He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. Don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your father great pleasure, great happiness, sorry. (laughs) I learned this in a different translation and whenever I go back, my brain swaps back. the Okay, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. This is actually an interesting passage because I hear an old mandate in that. We've talked about this. It's called the cultural mandate. Way back in Genesis 1, it says, Then God blessed him and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the birds and the animals. God makes this beautiful, rich world and he says, Here, I'm giving it to you. It gives me pleasure to give you the kingdom. Rule over it on my behalf. Bear my image and have dominion as my steward. That was our original call, our original design. Before there was sin, before there was brokenness, before anything went wrong, we were supposed to care for things for God. We were supposed to steward and govern for God. Look back at, the, at Jesus' parable. My, my crops, my born, my stuff. My is stressful. His is freeing. Ownership is stressful. Stewardship is liberating. The more we look at the things we have as ours, the more we live in that scratching, sweating, scrabbling existence. Hanging on to everything we can. The more we feel like we're simply governing God's good stuff the more we have a looser grip on it. And we suddenly don't look at it as though we have access just to our stuff. We're suddenly governing God's great abundance. But that's hard. Humanity's been scratching out a living since Adam and his rib. And it's simply not... My wife, I used to call her my rib. (laughs) Hey, rib! I'm going to read that line again. Humanity's been scratching out a living since Adam and his rib. And it is simply not easy to let go of that and live without that stress. I'm sorry, Jesus is like highly logical. Which one of you can add one cubit to his height by worrying? Well, in that case, why would you worry? That's not helpful. That's just not helpful. I wish it was. Like, it makes sense. But he does give us this tool. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. And store up a treasure. It'll store up a treasure for you in heaven. And the purses in heaven will never get old, never develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. also. So sell everything you have and give it to the church. That's, no, kidding. Kidding. Don't sell everything you have. I think Jesus is intentionally being hyperbolic here just to make a point. But I do believe that the thing that neutralizes that yeast that Jesus is concerned about is generosity. If you have money in the bank and your heart and mind are are attached to that money and you're worried about it and it's creating stress, take some of it and give it away and watch what happens. Give it, give it to somebody, and then I promise you'll be wondering how they're doing. I wonder how they're doing. Do they, did it help? Do they need more? You'll, you'll notice your heart and soul follow that treasure. 
And suddenly you're worried about people. And how are you? Did it, do you need more? Is everything okay? And, and you'll notice your heart shifted with the treasure. And please, please know, I'm not trying to raise money for the church right now. There's, I'm not passing a plate. That's next week. I'm not, no. But maybe, maybe look around your house and, and see what you can give away. Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline, which is one of my favorite books, says that he does this every once in a while. We've tried it. Just walk through your house and look for something to give away. And the second you feel your heart go, I can't give that away. He's like, get rid of it immediately. That's yeast. That's, it's tiny. But the second you're like, no, I, I need that. He's like, when I do that, I give it away automatically. Like, I need to learn to live without that for a while. We've actually tried this. And the crazy thing is, um, it's hard. You feel like you're not attached to your stuff until you try to give it away. And then you're like, whoo. But let's say you gave away your TV. You're like, that's the center of my room. My living room would look stupid without it. (laughs) You know what's going to happen? If you give away your TV um, and and you give it to somebody else and it really blesses them, you'll live without a TV for a few weeks, maybe three weeks. You'll make a couple good memories in that time and then you'll probably get bored and buy another TV. (laughs) Or you'll move on from another room and it won't ultimately change much except you'll figure out that this stuff can be moved around. It can be passed. Like giving away a TV didn't make me go without a TV. I wound up with another TV and I blessed somebody. And I figured out that if I had to go without a TV, I could. I did it for three weeks. We had some fun. And, it's, and, and you realize stuff is transitory. It, it can, I don't have to hang on to anything. I can give it away for six months and then get another one if I want. They all, that stuff shows up. Yeah, I like having a TV, but I don't need it. There's only one way to learn that. That's to live without it for a little while. And in so doing, you bless somebody. I promise you, you'll get another TV. They go on sale all the time. It's crazy how cheap stuff gets every once in a while. Try it. Do a generosity experiment and see what happens to your heart. See what happens. I think it changes a lot. How do we respond to this? I do want to say this one more time. Jesus is warning his disciples in today's passage about yeast, this sneaky little quiet sinfulness that can make good things bad. It can change the nature of something that's inherently good and turn it bad. Jesus isn't picking on having a crowd. One of the passages, one of the ones where Jesus multiplies the fish sandwich to feed thousands, the disciples are like, hey, send the crowds home so they can eat. Jesus is like, there's no reason to disperse the crowds. Feed them. Just feed them. So Jesus isn't against the crowd. In that case, he's like, no, leave the crowds here. We got a good thing going. Just feed them. He's afraid of a crowd for the wrong reason. I struggle with this reality every day. I I want a crowd here. And I don't want a crowd here. And it's a tension. I work like really hard on my messages. I study a lot. I read a lot. I take my time writing them. I put a lot of emotion into my sermons. Of course I want as many people as possible to hear it. I like preaching. It's fun. I really feel like God leads us into a lot of stuff that we study together. 
Esther and I were talking about this weird connection with Ezekiel 36 and 37 and the, and the, the parables we're studying. I did not plan that connection. And yet, every single week, we're being drawn back to Ezekiel 36. I'm not smart enough to put things together like that. They just happen. And I was like, that is so cool. I think God is in it. I really do. And of course, if God's in it, I want people to be a part of it. I want people to hear that and hear what God has to say. If I believe God's at work in our studies, then it, it, I want it to be heard. I don't know if that's self-aggrandizing or not. I don't, I'm not, I don't know. But I would love if way more people heard our worship band. I think our worship band is awesome. I love blessing kids. I wish we had twice as many kids downstairs screaming and making noise that we can hear up here. I want that, and yet, I'm terrified of it. This scares me. Because I don't know if I have the right motives. I'm afraid of yeast. I think I do. I hope I do. But yeast is sneaky. I often sit on Facebook with like Facebook open trying to make a post about our church. And it all sounds so crass and like marketing. And I can't do it. I'd sit there for like an hour. Like I can't. I type something. Ew, gross. That sounds gross. And I back it up. <laughs> I can't do it. I'm scared of yeast. And it's a tension. It's a definite tension. And I love people. I get excited every time I meet somebody new. I love it when somebody new at the church sends me a Monday night prayer request and I get to like be a little piece of their life and help them carry their burdens. It makes me happy to do that. I love that. But it's such a slippery slope between I love people and I want to bless people and know people and I want a big church. It's sneaky. So I hope you'll pray for me because I don't want to screw this up. I fight that tension every day. But the thing is, so do you. We all fight this tension when it comes to our stuff, our possessions. Of course we all want more stuff and good stuff. Like, we want to be comfortable. We want to be able to be a blessing to somebody without having to worry about which bill's not going to get paid so that I can help this person. We want, we, we want stuff. We don't want to have to scratch and struggle and sweat just to pay our bills. We don't want to feel uncomfortable every time Pastor Chris brings up money. It'd be really awesome if this was a choice between greed or generosity that you got to just make once and for all. You want to be greedy or you want to be generous? Oh, that's super easy. Except you got to make it every day. It's a tug of war every day. That same old curse is nagging at us every day. Telling us to scratch for what's ours. Feel that call of the Spirit to be generous and the two are pulling on us all the time. So I guess the way that I would love for us to respond to this message is just to enter in to that tension. Seek first the kingdom. Lean in and start to ask yourself, am I living for the kingdom? Am I pursuing the kingdom of God? Is it what I think about and strive for? And do I want to dig deeper into it? Is it, is it who I am or is, is church just part of my culture? It's what I do on Sundays. If that's all it is, I invite you to go deeper. I beg you to dive in. Get connected with some other people in the church. Start looking for ways to advance the kingdom for some people to be generous to. I, don't, I, I, I really do think... 
If we'll do that, we'll feel our heart shift as our treasures shift. And I don't just mean your money, but the things you treasure. As the things you treasure and focus on and live for start to shift, your heart will go with it. And since Jesus' parable was specifically about wealth and ownership and stewardship and such, let me end with this. Ever since we did the message on the prodigal son four weeks ago, whatever, five weeks ago, that that parable led us to Ezekiel 37, that valley of dry bones and that idea of resurrection and God taking this death and speaking to it and bringing about life. And every single week I've been going back to Ezekiel 36 and 37 and what God said back then about life. So this week I thought, let's just go see what's there. So I decided to check out Ezekiel 36 and 37. And this is the passage that immediately follows what we read last week. The passage we read last week in Ezekiel 37. Where God is like, I'm going to give you a new heart to replace that stony, stubborn one you have. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh and my spirit. This is what he says next. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. That's where we left off last week. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I'll give you good crops of grain. And I'll send you more, uh, uh, send no more famines on the land. I'll give you great harvest from your fruit trees and fields. And never again with the surrounding, will the surrounding nations be able to scoff at your land for its famines. Then they'll remember your past sins. Then you will remember your past sins and despise yourself for all the detestable things you did. But remember, says the Sovereign Lord, I'm not doing this because you deserve it. Oh, my people Israel, you've done some utterly... uh, You should be utterly ashamed of the things you've done. This is what the Lord God says. When I cleanse you of your sins... I will repopulate your cities and uh, and your ruins will be rebuilt. And the fields that used to lie empty and desolate in plain view of everyone will again be farmed. And when I bring you back, the people will say, This former wasteland is now the Garden of Eden. The abandoned ruined cities now have strong walls and they're filled with people. We're back in the garden again. That garden imagery of God saying, I've I've wanted you to have this from the beginning. We're not part of a story that got broken and so God's like, well, I guess we'll just make a new story. And now they'll just all die and go to heaven. (laughs) God intended us to to live and be fruitful. He made us for a storyline and, he, and he's redeeming that storyline, that storyline of stewardship where, where God has this good earth and these good things and he wants us to be a part of governing and, and ruling over that, connected to him, connected to ourselves, connected to others, and connected to the work we do, the very earth. And that's what it means to have resurrection life. 